The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We want to take this moment to congratulate Netflix for the recent Oscar win by The Elephant Whisperers for Best Documentary Short. We had a chance to speak with director Cardiki Gonzalez and producer Doug Blush about their film. It's a story of how Bowman and Belly adopt a young orphaned elephant ragu. As Doug said, it's an unusual family story. And it's also, subtly and unobtrusively, a meditation on the relationship between humans and the other species of an ever-warming world. So once again, congratulations, Cardiki, Doug, everyone who worked on the film, and you can see The Elephant Whisperers now streaming on Netflix. Nam Jim Pick, Moon is the Oldest TV, is the personal and artistic odyssey of the father of video art, Nam Jim Pick, who saw how communication technologies could both divide people ideologically or connect people around the world. And his art was an attempt to create an electronic Esperanto, if you will, to connect people all over the world. That's director Amanda Kim describing her new feature documentary, Nam Jun Peck, Moon is the Oldest TV. This was one of my favorite films from those I saw at Sundance this year, and it was great to have a chance to speak with Amanda about this important artist. I knew Peck from his video work and his various experiments with television technology, but Amanda's film showed me the surprising roots of his aesthetics in Arnold Schoenberg and especially John Cage. Some of what surprised me was the exuberant destructiveness of his early work, slashing Cage's tie, smashing pianos and violins. And it's great to see him working within these wide cohorts of artists, musicians, dancers, poets, especially from the 1960s and 70s, from the Fluxus movement, and in downtown Manhattan. Moon is the Oldest TV debuted at Sundance, where it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize. It is distributed by Greenwich Entertainment, and opens at the Film Forum in Manhattan on Friday, March 24th. If you like this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TopDocsPod. All one word, at TopDocsPod. Coming up, my conversation with Amanda Kim about her film, Nam Jin Peck, Moon is the Oldest TV. Amanda Kim, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. You start with it's black and we hear some odd noises rising in the background. Then two kind of elliptical shapes of blue and a green appear. The translated voice says, it looks like butterflies. And now we see Peck next to the screen. He's holding something. He's sort of singing. And as he does so, the shapes change. He utters, he coughs. First, what are we looking at here? What year is this? And what is he holding? What's he doing here? So... I believe that would be in the 70s. It's when he's living in New York. And we are looking at one of his pieces called Participation TV, where he wants you to talk back to the television because he understands that TV is a dictatorial medium and it can brainwash you. The higher powers can tell you what to believe, what is real information. And he believes that you should be able to manipulate it, talk back to it, have a conversation with it. So he's holding a mic where he is talking into the television and changing 
the images that you see on the screen. And you sort of anticipated my next question, which is, how is this connected to film? Obviously, talking back, interactivity, speaking back to a medium. I also thought it was interesting that it's a bit musical. It's both visual and sound, right? Yeah, that was really important to the editing of the whole film. Because Namjoon actually has a musical background, he actually started as a composer. And his first like artistic inspiration was, or one of his biggest was Schoenberg and then John Cage. So even the way in which he edits and plays with the synthesizer and the way he plays with his own video art is musical. He composes images. And he even says at one point, you can play my visual effects machine that he created like a piano. And so that was really important just through the through line of the film that it was musical. And we also really wanted to play with the pacing of the film and the kind of music we use both like the composer created his own avant-garde prepared piano pieces as well as an homage to John Cage and Namjoon as well as like created more like melodic propulsive composition. Another thing you do early on is you show us a number of talking heads, you know, floating towards us. And I think visually they're anticipating some of the work that Namjoon will do later, that we'll see later. And this could be kind of a standard, you know, uh, stake setting moment, but you do some interesting juxtaposition. So you have someone say he's Benjamin Franklin and he's like the creators of the constitution. We see him eating an apple inside a TV. One of the most deeply informed and extraordinary intellectuals of our time. He's smashing his face into a cake. PhD in pre-Renaissance music and he's smashing a camera on a keyboard. I think you're having some fun here, but you're also, I think, really capturing some of his spirit. Thank you. Yeah, actually, that was one of the first things that the editor and I edited together, and it didn't really change. It was like the first instinct, like when we were starting the edit, actually, because the thing that really interested me about Namjoon was that he was like a walking contradiction, and he always challenged your assumptions. And so like, he's brilliant, but he also does this thing that people usually associate with being kind of silly or stupid, but he's doing it and he's a genius. He's like Benjamin Franklin. I really wanted to show you how he plays with assumptions rather than just like saying it. And that's also in the spirit of Namjoon, even in his own work. Like it's both funny, but if you look at it closer, it's spiritual and it's deep. Yeah, no, I think you capture that very well. And that continues in the film. I'm sure we'll touch upon that again. Another thing you do is you talk a bit of Peck's speech. We're told he spoke about 20 languages, all extremely badly. One of your talk heads suggests he spoke Peckish sometimes. Can you talk about why you decided to focus? It's a couple minutes, even before the titles on this particular point. There is a lot of different reasons I think language plays into the film. One is it's hinting at how global he was, and that's a huge part of even just his identity as an artist and why he was so important and influential, and he was so ahead of his time in that way too. The other is in the film, you're going to hear him speak all these different languages, but none of them that well, and we're going to subtitle him, and we wanted you to understand like this is why, but you're not going to know until like you watch the whole film. And we wanted to play with subtitles. And then as I said in the log line, like I felt it also speaks to his personal story as someone who was itinerant and from everywhere and nowhere at the same time and how like video becomes a universal language, a tool for him to communicate with him, like an electronic Esperanto or Peckish, his own language that he created that everyone can understand. Everyone learns to understand him, but it's not the usual form of language, but it's a form of communication. So I think there are many layers as to why language played a huge role in the film. And we wanted to set that up early. 
He's just wonderful the way he speaks and he writes. And you have Stephen Yoon, who's a tremendous narrator, one of your EPs, but a tremendous narrator, reading some of his writings. Let me ask you this, and this is a tougher question, so tell me if I'm way off base on this one. But also, one of the things that struck me is that for a long time, I can probably point to instances in the 19th century, racists have weaponized the way that the supposed way that Asians and Asian Americans speak as a way of oppressing people who are Asian. And I wonder if you were also sort of taking that head on. What I think is really interesting about Nam Jun, and I never wanted to just directly state it, but you can sense it, is that Nam Jun always understood like his environment and his place in the world and the power dynamics of every interaction. Because he was really attuned to that. And he says that kind of later, like he felt like he was a New Yorker, or he was like, he says oriental, like depending on if there were Asians around or there weren't. He was super attuned to that. And so I think he almost played with your assumptions and your assumptions of what he was going to be like because he had an accent or he spoke like that. Like he definitely played into certain stereotypes and then disarmed you. And I think that's also part of Namjoon's brilliance. But yeah, I'd also think like it was just the natural way he moved around in the world. He's you're going to understand me, you know? And you don't focus like a lot on any racism that he must have experienced in the U.S. And in fact, what's interesting is you talk about a different sort of tyranny, which is this hidden colonialism, as Peter Brotzman calls it, when Nam Jun goes to Germany. But after the Second World War, Brotzman and I think Nam in some ways connect what was happening to Nazis at concentration camps with what happened with Japan and Korea. And I think you take on this really tricky subject. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think... What's so beautiful about Nam Jun is that he can find like connections and relate to all kinds of people around the world. Like all of these people, no matter where you come from, if you've experienced war and are dealing with the aftermath of that, you can relate. And there's a connection. And all of these people through their art are trying to find some answer or ask more questions about what happened. It doesn't matter whether you're from Korea or whether you're German. And I think that's what's so beautiful about him. And that's also the story I wanted to tell. You know, we're all more alike than different. So as we said, he, in 1956, he leaves Korea for post-war Germany. He's drawn by music, by Schoenberg, who we should note had left Germany long before, had died in Los Angeles before this. You even show Peck showing, playing some Schoenberg on a stage, which I think was a little bit later. Can you just explain the importance of Schoenberg for Peck? Schoenberg was really famous for creating atonal music. He was composing music in a different way than the Western composers before him. It was very radical and avant-garde. And Namjoon discovers his music in war tour in Korea. It's a moment where he is really repressed and is seeking something different, like some kind of change, something outside of the convention. And clearly the convention is not working. It caused this war. The way people think what's available to them has caused this mentality that has led to this kind of destruction and like evil. So he discovers this thing that's so fresh and radical and breaks all the rules, and he's really attracted to it. And that's just the beginning of his avant-garde journey. His whole life is avant-garde in a way. His lifestyle, the way he approaches everything is avant-garde because everything is about breaking taboos, breaking the status quo. And that's kind of the through line through everything he does, whether it's performance, music, video, everything. I think it's interesting because Schoenberg, of course, as you said, was pulling apart music, right? Challenging the conventions of melody and other aspects of music. 
as were painters doing something similar at the same time in the early 20th century, literary artists and so forth. And so later on, we'll see he's distorting the images on a TV with a magnet. And the voiceover says, it's not about the beauty of abstraction, but an attack on the sanctity of the image, of its power, of its veracity, making a political case for what Peck was doing. But can it be both? I, to me, it seems like it's both. It can definitely be both. I just thought sometimes, I think the power of the, hopefully the film, and what I wanted to say is that Nam Jun was thinking outside of the art world. And I do think it can be both. I think that's the first layer. And then the second layer is this thing, like he's thinking beyond just an image or what you might experience in the museum. And I think that was just so important to Nam Jun. He was a thinker and constantly reading things outside of the art world. His goal was not to just be seen. Of course, he was super honored to be at like the biggest art institutions, but he also put his work on public television. So, And in 1958, Peck sees in Germany, sees a concert. It's his famous tour of John Cage and David Tudor, as you point out, who's often forgotten. And he comes away a changed man when he sees the show. Can you explain what he saw and what happened there? Yeah, it's you guys should just watch it. But I think it, it's a funny situation. Actually, John Cage was like change music forever. He inspired a lot of really famous musicians, even like pop stars. I think John Lennon was inspired by Cage. He changed Western music yet again, like Schoenberg. He was actually Schoenberg's student, I think. And then Cage challenged Western music by incorporating Eastern practices into his music. And the way he would create compositions was by using chants. So like he would use the I Ching and throw the coins or stocks of it and then decide his compositions based on whatever came of that, like the number that came out of that. A lot of his compositions were just like David Tudor, like plucking at the piano, grand piano strings or like cage typing or, you know, he thought every sound was equally beautiful. So it could really be anything. And the audience members hated it because it didn't sound like music and they would just walk out or throw tomatoes apparently on stage and whatnot. And Nam June was like, what the hell is this? But it was like the Schoenberg thing. It's just the avant-garde spirit. Like anything could be art. And that freed Nam June from the Western conventions of art and allowed him to feel like he could create and he could make whatever he wanted. And anything he wanted could be art. So that was really a moment of liberation. I also wonder how much this influenced you in your film, because besides the after scene where we see how you choose the title of your film by, you know, flipping a coin, you also have some moments of chance of things like a light is, goes off or a phone rings. Sometimes these quote unquote mistakes we would leave out of the film, but you incorporate them in. And I felt like maybe you were including a little bit of chance into your film. Yeah, definitely. There were things that happened that were kind of mysterious throughout the making of the film. And at a certain point, I try to learn how to embrace those moments. And then, yeah, some even made it into the film. You know, making a documentary is really hard. And I think Nam June is actually like the most inspirational subject because as you see later in Good Morning, Mr. Orwell, when everything goes wrong, he says, I just let it happen. I try, you know, it's not easy for me to... I like to do things a certain way, but I really had to channel Nam June in those moments. One of the things that he comes out of, of this is he starts doing some interesting things, which involve, you know, breaking pianos and violins. It's very central symbols of Western music. You have some amazing photographs of this performance he had in 1960, where he destroys a piano and John Cage is in the audience. He cuts his tie and he runs off stage, he disappears and he calls back in and says the performance is over. It's obviously freeing and it's obviously a lot of fun, 
but it's more than that, right? In, in some ways, he's also, he's a revolutionary Marxist and that's how he started out. And he's challenging Cage. Cage is doing this incredible music, but he's dressing in this incredible bourgeois style as well. Yeah, no, when I found that audio piece where Nam June describes the hypocrisy of the most avant-garde artist wearing a tuxedo, so I should cut that off. I was like, we have to include this because that just also just symbolizes everything Nam June is about. If something is like the status quo, I'm going to destroy it. Even if it's my father or my icon, I'm going to do that. It doesn't matter. Nothing is sacred. I think that's really a key element to Namjoon's practice. And we had wonderful photos of it. Oh, it's they're remarkable. What's amazing is that he's not alone in this. He actually finds a group that shares some of his ideals and are responding to Cage and others in this period, which is Fluxus. There's amazing people here. Joseph Baez, Yoko Ono. You don't show him, but Al Henson, Beck's grandfather, was part of this group. Can you explain the importance of Fluxus for him? Fluxus in so many different ways. Yeah, first, it's a community of like-minded people. Fluxus was like one of the, they were really early global avant-garde art movement. And so like wherever Namjoon went, like later when he goes to New York, he finds Fluxus people there. Like in Japan, there's a Fluxus movement. It's one of the first art movements to include Asian artists. Um, so that was a really big part, this global network of a community or a family away from home for Namjoon. And he meets a lot of his like collaborators there through that. And then the other is like all of these people are practicing this kind of Cajun radical avant-garde art. And in this moment where you could feel very lonely, he's away from his family in Germany or later in New York. There are people who are doing similar things that he can collaborate with and that he can find a safe, like a home in a way through these people, I think it's really important. But if you want to talk about the significance artistically too, obviously there are many reasons. I don't even talk about, there's a Fluxus documentary that's great. You guys should watch it. George Machina's documentary. They were doing like male art early on and they were doing a lot of things early on that were very prescient. In 1963, Peck has a show at Gallery Parnasse, which is really, as I understand it, like a private residence in the middle of nowhere in Germany. It's an exposition of music on like electronic televisions. And really, it's the birth of this form of art, right? He alters the TVs. He gives people's buttons that they can push that will change the images. So they become something other than simply a passive transmitter. And the critics in Germany just couldn't see what was going on. It's a really turning point, both in the art and it pushes him to New York City. The importance of it is, yeah, that he took this thing that normally isn't considered art, this object that was in people's homes and this like commercial object, and then decided that that was art by just like flipping it on its side, like vertically, or having it play weird images that you can like change or just doing little things to it. And then everyone thought it was just like broken televisions because, you know, no one had seen these things. They just had seen them in their homes. And this was like a completely novel experience, but he was turning this like normal object into something totally different and making you see it differently. And I think its significance is both that was, people like to say that was the beginning of it all, a video art, but it was ignored. I think that also propels Namjoon to make his move to New York where he thinks people might get it better and where he's kind of proven wrong for a second, but there is more like opportunities for him. And probably it's a good thing because he ends up going to New York and it's the greatest time in some ways to be in New York City if you're an artist. As he notes, there's amazing people at these great parties, all sorts of you know, musicians and artists and all sorts of people, just ideas floating around to be snatched, but also a tremendous struggle. 
for him personally, right? He's, a, as he says, a poor man from a poor country. He had been born into a wealthy family, but at this point, he's a poor man from a poor country. You have just some amazing shots of Mercer Street. It is hard to really look at those shots and think these are the same streets that are now Soho. <laughs> you know, these streets are paved with gold now. Can you talk about the archival approach? How exciting was it seeing those old shots of New- downtown New York? I'm so jealous that I wasn't there. I mean, Soho, that was a really important thing about Fluxus, if you want to hear an important contribution, is that George Machunas basically developed Soho in a way. He bought up a lot of the lofts there and gave them to artists. And that's how a lot of these artists ended up creating a home in Soho before it became Soho today. The real estate back then was dirt cheap, and Namjoon was one of the residents of one of these George Machinus lofts. We see these amazing documents where he thanks someone for sending him $10 and all the canned goods he bought and a TV guide. (laughs) New York is a really exciting place and it's a tough place. And even though back then it was obviously way cheaper than it is now, it's hard for artists to make a living, especially if you're doing something not marketable. You know, he continues as an action musician and Charlotte Mormon comes into his world and he says sex and classical music had never been brought together. Obviously, her contributions are way beyond that. But can you talk about that collaboration between them? I am super inspired by their collaboration. She's a really important figure in Namjoon's life. And she's such a wonderful character and person. Their collaboration is a really big part of Namjoon's like body of work. I think one of the things yeah, they talk about is sex and music have never been combined and they're trying to break the taboos of that. But also Namjoon starts creating these like objects out of televisions that Charlotte either plays or wears like a TV bra, TV cello, TV glasses. It also just speaks to like the prescience of Namjoon's work and their collaboration. It's like nowadays, a lot of people do like nude performances. Nowadays, you see like smart objects. I just feel like so much of what Charlotte and Namjoon have done together have come to life today. And like one of the things I saw recently was at the Grammys, Mary J. Blige had a Charlotte Mormon quote on stage and had TV cellos they created. So it's really like they're kind of late to it, but it is now in popular culture as of this year. But there's a lot of challenges to his success, right? And some of it is just some of the hierarchies of art. Painting is still in the 1960s on the top rank and maybe sculpture underneath it. And even at this point, this is hard for us to understand, I think, photography wasn't considered really a fine art. I mean, it wasn't really till really the 80s, maybe, that photography was recognized at the same kind of quote-unquote level. So that's one of the challenges. The other one is like, how do you display video? How do you sell video? Can you talk about some of the sort of built-in challenges for the form he chose in terms of becoming a market success? Firstly, televisions were just these things in your homes where you watched shows mindlessly. So To have people look at it as an art object, also when it's not like painting or something like handcrafted was seen as art objects, like that was also really difficult. There was no market for it. And then there's also just the technical difficulties of television. Firstly, they're really expensive to get a hold of. So as an artist, when you're not making any money because you can't sell them, how do you get a hold of televisions and then breaking them down to create your art? And then also to conserve televisions. Like if you are actually showing something on the screen, like the technical aspects of it too, like were obstacles. And even now people have a hard time conserving Namjoon's work as the parts are becoming obsolete. Yeah, convincing people that it's art and then also trying to like make, actually make it. And this pushed him to really, well, obviously seek grants, but also he went to public television. 
1968, he went to WGBH in Boston. And as we discussed in another conversation I had with the directors of Julia, at that point, early 60s, it had been a backwater, you know, ancient Harvard professors droning on about classical Greece. And then came Julia Childs. She really opened up WGBH and, and they welcomed him too. And what he did is just really fascinating. And the, of course, the engineers did not love it because he's messing around with their images that they work so hard to perfect. So it's very important for that purpose. But also, he finds out the cost of TV is so high. And he said, this won't do. You know, if we're going to democratize TV, we've got to do something. And can you talk about what he did in the wake of that experience? So he decided because it was so expensive to use the equipment at these television studios because you had to pay so much money for studio time, like hourly. He decided he wanted to make his own tools. He's going to make like his own brushes to manipulate the images on television. So he studied engineering himself. Apparently he reads a bunch of books and then he like draws a diagram and brings it to an engineer in Japan to build a synthesizer. There had been other synthesizers before, but his is, I think, one of the first that was able to be broadcast on television. Like it was broadcast quality synthesizer. So you do all these digital effects, like multiply images, colorize them and do all this crazy, beautiful stuff that nowadays you think is normal, but really wasn't back then. I love this. One of the surprises of your film, besides the depth of his experience in music, which I really didn't know anything about, is that he has that kind of James Cameron. The first thing I got to do is build a new camera kind of ethos. He goes and he's never done this before and he delivers it to the engineer and the engineers. OK, I'll try. And they come up with this tool that has then used for really the next decade and a half to create incredible video effects. And in 1973 and WNET, and again, and public TV station in New York. He does 29 minutes of maybe some of the most important TV that ever happens, which is Global Groove, which again, brings together these video effects, all these friends of his. It's a veritable stew of downtown New York from the 60s and 70s. Merce and John Cage and Charlotte Mormon and the Living Theater, all to be into music again. Can you talk about the impact of that show? At the time, the impact wasn't as great as it is looking back. Yeah, show on television, like an art piece that was just playing on public television. It was a really innovative, like experimental moment for public television. I wish we still had that today, but I think the reactions of the general public were kind of confusion. But you see that now and it starts with the TV guide will be as fat as the Manhattan telephone book. And you think about how many channels there are and how many options for like content that we constantly have today. Namjoon was saying that in 1974 through Global Groove and you see all these different artists and it's like flipping through all these channel of different artists work. Someone describes it as YouTube. You see how prescient that piece was. Yeah, it definitely inspires and some of the other work he did shortly thereafter inspires early videos on MTV. So When Doves Cry and then Once in a Lifetime, which is probably one of the most influential videos ever, right? But clearly drew from his work. No surprise. Talking Heads are a downtown New York kind of band. So it's no surprise that there was that influence. That's funny because I those seem so far away from 1974 and 1978, but they're really like five, six years later. The 80s seems so distinct. And yet it really seems like he anticipated some of the visual aesthetic that would make up the early 80s. Someone who was a director of MTV Music Videos was saying that, yeah, MTV was definitely 
inspired a lot by Namjoon, those early like 80s music videos. So this was not an immediate success, but one of his immediate successes approximately the same time was the Buddha. He takes his last $10,000 and buys this Buddha statue for his birthday. And then he has the insight to put it in front of a TV and shoot the Buddha. So the Buddha is looking at his, I'll say his own reflection in the TV. It's a beautifully rounded TV, almost like in a stereotypical Buddha belly, seems to me. Can you talk about just the success he had with this particular instance and then the copies, the versions he made thereafter? I think the brilliance of Namjoon is sometimes he comes up with the simplest idea, which is the most like complex idea. But then when you look at it, you're like, duh, how did I not think of this? It's so genius and iconic. And I think that's the case with this Buddha piece where, yeah, he just, he buys a Buddha and he puts it in front of a camera and it's looking at its own image through the television in a closed circuit, like surveillance cam loop, basically. And it turns out to be one of his most successful pieces, even though everyone, including his wife, were skeptical about this. Then he brings him more money. So he makes a lot of different versions. I also love that about Namjoon, which is the practicality. He's not like afraid to say it. He's okay, this sells. I guess I'll make a couple more of these. But the piece is just brilliant. He creates so many different versions of it. I don't even know how many. I'd be interested actually to know how many different versions exactly he made of this piece. So I will say one thing is that the book. Buddha is not the piece that just launched him into fame. It was a bunch of things around that time. But the Buddha was a piece that had a very a clear story from people being skeptical to it getting into this major museum around the time when he started to become noticed. He has his first major exhibit at the Whitney. He started to get noticed. And it's interesting then he expends all this kind of social and cultural capital on this amazing thing. In 1984, a show called Good Morning, Mr. Orwell. And the idea is we're going to kind of using new satellite technology. We're going to broadcast simultaneously from Paris and from New York. And for some reason, he decides that George Plimpton is a great choice. What was the thought behind this? You know, 1984 was coming up. There is this idea from 1984, George Orwell's book, that Big Brother's watching you and these technologies are going to be used to surveil you and control you. And Namjoon is always looking to see the positive possibilities, how these technologies can be used for humanity. So as 1984 approaches, he wants to show how these new satellite technologies can actually be used to connect people around the world and share and be used to improve humanity, not divide. So he somehow convinces networks around the world in a very short span. He had the idea for a while, actually, but he pitched it to a WNET producer like in the fall when he wants to broadcast this January 1st. And he manages to convince networks around the world to do this crazy live television show between Paris and New York on New Year's Day. And all of these avant-garde artists and some pop artists as well are performing live and having a conversation with each other across the world live. And I think that's what we're doing now. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah. He really was awake to the possibilities very early on. And this opens the door for him to return to Korea. He becomes a national hero in Korea because of this. And he'd been afraid to return. And even in this period, in their early 80s, Korea was not a democratic country. It was still a very autocratic country. And he's believes, you know, as a former left, maybe still a leftist, he could be in danger, but it opens the door for him to return. Can you talk about the importance of that for him? He hadn't returned to Korea in 34 years. 
And he was always scared to return, as you said. He was known as a leftist. And back then in South Korea, because of the split with the North, there was like a red scare still happening. And if you were communist, you could go to jail and tortured. So Namjoon was afraid of returning. But this gave him the opportunity because he managed to get Good Morning Mr. Orwell broadcast in Korea. And a lot of people watched it. Yeah, I think that moment was particularly interesting for me to discover because there's a friend of his who said that he had even prepared some in case he was arrested at the airport or something, some situation. And he gave him a number in Amsterdam to call. It's very mysterious. I'm curious as to what this number is. <laughs> yeah. I kind of want to call this number and see what Namjoon had planned. That was news to me. And a lot of people didn't know that about Namjoon. And I think it also shows like the deep-rooted fear that Namjoon experienced as someone who had to leave home for various reasons. You know, kind of his final years, he does some amazing and monumental works in Korea, also at the Guggenheim, the great Guggenheim atrium, and he had seven-story waterfall with lasers, just incredible work, really showing how he, he did gain a lot of recognition in these final years. However, at the same time, it's very affecting in that you know, he's suffering health-wise. He has diabetes, later he has a stroke, and it's almost like this irony that as he finally achieves success, those earlier years catch up with him, this life of maybe not the best nutrition, inadequate housing, a lack of health care, working those insane hours. How do you feel when you see him in those final years? That part was really moving to me because he maintained that sense of humor and that determination despite like another obstacle that was really debilitating and that age wasn't going to stop him. And he was still creating these massive, beautiful, iconic works at that time that are so beautiful. I just really wanted to include that in the film. Let me say, I, I just love this film. I loved every second of it. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I, I think he's a wonderful subject. He is so important to where we are in terms of visual art today and music, but especially visual art today. And I think you've really done justice by him. So congratulations on the film. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. Yeah, we put a lot of love into it and I really care about Namjoon as a character. So I'm glad that you enjoyed the film. I got one question for you. The unknown comic. Do you think, <laughs> do you really think he's an example of stupidity? I always thought it was meta. I was making fun of the stupidity of American TV. Oh, um, I think stupid isn't necessarily bad, but it's also bad. <laughs> Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you don't think it's the attention that it deserves? Maybe it did get the attention it deserves, but I don't feel like a lot of people talk about it. Town Bloody Hall, D.A. Pennebaker. It's a film about one event, a town hall event in New York City, where Norman Mailer gets grilled by four feminists. He wrote an article that really pissed off the feminist community. It's just one event, but it's so brilliantly edited by Chris Hedges. So everyone should watch this film.